Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 155th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. My friends call me JAG. I'm the CEO of the Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in fresh creative ways, graphic novels, animated videos. Uh, today, we are joined by Dr. Eamon Butler. Before I even begin to introduce our guest, I want to remind all of you who are watching us on Zoom, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, you can start using the comment section to type in your questions. We'll get to as many of them as we can. So in a sense, you might say that we have two guests today. One is Adam Smith. Uh, the great Scottish Enlightenment economist and philosopher born in 1723 and celebrate the 300th anniversary of his birth. Uh, we've invited a friend who's better positioned than anyone I know to discuss Smith's life and legacy. Uh, Eamon Butler is a British economist and co-founder of the Adam Smith Institute, a UK-based free market think tank. He is uh, the author of countless articles and numerous books on a wide range of subjects ranging from economics to psychology to politics. Some of his latest works include Ayn Rand, An Introduction, Capitalism, an introduction, and an introduction to democracy. Eamon, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's very good to be with you. Thanks uh, <laughs> Thanks very much for having me. Yeah. So uh, before turning to the birthday boy, I'm sure our audience would like to first start by learning a bit more about you, where you grew up, any early influences that motivated your passion for classically liberal ideas. Well, I was born in uh, rural Shropshire in England, uh, and uh, my my parents uh, together ran a, a small filling station. Um, so I sort of grew up knowing what it was like to run a small business and all of the problems about small business. So I suppose that that was uh, uh, a part of my education. And then I went to the university in Scotland, and there was um, you know quite a big uh, uh, libertarian group, really. I think you'd call it. Uh, and uh, we did, uh, we read our Friedman and Hayek and uh, uh, Adam Smith, but we also read uh, Ayn Rand. And uh, that I, I think again was uh, very influential. And then in the, in the 1970s, when the UK was, the economy was really uh, going downhill at a, a rapid rate, um, I and, and colleagues uh, uh, followed a lot of other people by joining what was called the brain drain. So we went to America and uh, uh, found lots of uh, interesting new new ideas there. I worked on Capitol Hill for a while and, and, and taught for a while before I came back to help uh, found the Adam Smith Institute. So I actually hadn't realized that uh, you'd worked in the US House of Representatives back in the 1970s. Any interesting stories from that experience? <laughs> well, two things uh, spring to mind. As a very junior person, uh, I, I had the dog's body job of uh, reading the Federal Register, which is where all the new regulations are posted. And uh, I realized that at the end of a year, I'd read 127,142 pages of regulation. 
And I thought, that's really a bit much, isn't it? I mean, nobody could, could possibly read all of that. Well, I, I, I could only skim it. I mean, nobody could read it, never mind understand it. So, you know, why do you have all this regulation? I thought it was a very strange place. And the other thing uh, which um, was very educational for me was the farm bill. And the farm bill was uh, going through Congress. And, and I, I read it and I pointed out that, well, most of it is about subsidizing farmers, but then bolted on at the end is a piece about uh, legislation about food stamps. And I said, well, food stamps is a welfare program. And the farm bill is, is, is a farm program. What's going on? And uh, my colleagues looked at me as if I had come from Mars. I was an idiot. And they said, well, it's quite simple. All the Republicans vote for the farm subsidies and all of the Democrats vote for the welfare benefits. So everybody's happy. And I said, well, yes, apart from the uh, American taxpayer, perhaps. <laughs> so I thought that sort of coalition building was something that we could use um, to reverse things when we came to the UK. And so uh, in the UK, got, well, I got involved in privatization and things like that. And we used the same idea of building coalitions to, to reduce the state rather than to build it up. All right. Well, I'm going to take a pause and remind everybody that we are taking your questions live. Uh, Dr. Butler is joining us from England, so it's a little bit later there, um, but let's start filling up the uh, pantry with questions and we'll get to them shortly. So, um, Eamon, you also taught philosophy at Hillsdale College. Mm -hmm. Obviously, philosophy is very important to us at the Outland Society. Any particular aspect or philosopher that you favored? Oh, well, um, I'm going to get into your bad books because uh, really I taught the British empiricists, you know, Locke, Barclay, Hume, uh, these sorts of people, uh, people who were skeptical about, about reality. Um, so I think, and, and that was really the tradition that I was uh, brought up in, having gone to university in Scotland. Uh, you know, it's almost inevitable that you end up as a Scottish empiricist. Um, and uh, as was Hume and as was uh, Adam Smith and, and so on. Um, so that was really the, the, the tradition and that's, that's, what I was, that's what I was bringing to the department really. So uh, I don't think Ayn Rand would have approved, but that's what I did. <laughs> uh, tell us about the story behind your decision to start the Adam Smith Institute um, and its mission and whether that's changed over the years. Well, it has changed. We thought we'd be much more academic than we are, and, and we're really a more more of a policy group. Although we do some uh, sort of research and, and long term uh, thinking, uh, but uh, as I say, there were there were three of us, in fact, uh, who'd all joined the brain drain, gone to America, and when we were there, we saw some interesting things that uh, we were told um, were impossible in the UK. I mean, for example, you had competition in telephones. And you know, my prof economics professor in St. Andrews University told me that that was theoretically impossible. You couldn't have competition in telephones. And then similarly, we saw people like Senator Kennedy saying, oh, we should have a, a British style national health service. And we thought, oh no, that's the last thing you want. It's horrible. So we decided that you know, Britain was our country and we, we'd give it one more go. Uh, but um, what we would try to do is to swap ideas across the Atlantic. Um, as it turned out, um, not very long after we came back, Mrs. Thatcher was elected in the UK, 
So we had a bit of an open goal to promote uh, pro-freedom and uh, free market uh, policies here in the UK. And that's really been most of our work ever since. Well, as one think tank leader to another, I'm curious to pick your brain on what has been the biggest challenge uh, that you've found in running a world-class think tank. Oh, it hasn't been a challenge, it's been a cakewalk. It's been very easy. I think, you know, what you shouldn't underestimate, there were very few of us, and uh, um, until recently, we, 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 we remained very small. And you shouldn't underestimate what a few dedicated people with some, some vision can actually uh, achieve. You can achieve an awful lot. Um, and uh, I, I think the important thing is to is to keep your focus. That you you you've got to know what it is that you're doing and not be diverted. Over forty years of running think tanks, um, you know, I've seen think tanks come and go. And one of the things is, well, if people decide, perhaps they might have more influence in politics, so they get too political, and then they they get you know branded as as being part of one party or another, and then nobody takes them seriously anymore or other think tanks they they think oh well if we write a, a report on this subject then big business will give us a lot of money so again you lose your soul there so i think you you, you know you've got to you, you've got to have a vision as to what it is that you're doing and why you're doing it and stick to that um and uh, you know my other rule is uh, never do anything that you're not prepared to see on the front page of the newspapers <laughs> uh, and that keeps you clean uh, yes, true, more than ever these days in our mass uh, surveillance state. So um, in addition to writing about Adam Smith, you've written about other pioneering economists, including Ludwig von Mies, F.A. Hayek, Milton Friedman. Uh, we've done a Draw My Life video on von Mies, which given his connection to Rand and his dramatic escape from the Nazis, of course, his own monumental achievements. Uh, it lent itself very well to that kind of um, project, an animated video that uh, was encapsulated um, in a first-person narrative. What other economists or philosophers' life would you recommend to us for such a dramatization? I think you've said that Adam Smith's life was a bit boring, but he was kidnapped by gypsies at some point so there's that it's said that he was kidnapped by by vagrants yes and uh, there's not really very much evidence for it but but it, it might it might have happened and he was a typical ab absent-minded professor and he uh, he would often be so bound up in his own thoughts he would uh, walk out of the house in his dressing gown and uh, you know, he he didn't uh, realize that he'd done that until the church bells from the village ten miles away uh, uh, stirred him out of his out of his self absorption. Uh, and and he also one day when he was talking to somebody, put bread and butter in the teapot instead of tea. So these are really the most exciting things that ever happened to him. <laughs> apart from apart from well, I mean, he did um, um, once he published his first book. Um, he got a very, very good job uh, as tutor to a young aristocrat, and that took him around Europe, where he he decided to write more about uh, economics. So, so that really made him the the economist. Uh, but otherwise, he, it was a pretty boring life. He, he never married, and so on. No, I think a much more exciting person is actually from the uh, 
the 17th century, one of my particular favorites is called John Lilburn, um, English um, uh, thinker. And um, he was known as Freeborn John because uh, he thought that everybody was born free. And this was a revolutionary idea at the time. And he, um, he produced pamphlets on this and pamphlets beating up the government for having too much uh, control over people's lives, um, for which he was promptly put in prison. Uh, because uh, you couldn't uh, publish anything in the 17th century unless you had a, a seal of approval from uh, a government agency, basically, the stationer's company. So he was put in prison for uh, uh, illicitly producing stuff. Um, and then he was uh, arraigned at the, the Star Chamber, which is a sort of secret court. And uh, he famously refused to bow to the judges on the grounds that you know, he was in his role as the accused, they were in their role as the accusers, they were both doing their job, so why should he bow to anybody? And for that he was uh, put, put in the stocks and whipped, and even in the stocks, as he was uh, there, you know, there, there in the stocks, uh, he was handing out these pamphlets to, to passing members of the public. And so he spent, you know, very large, and then he got put in jail again for something else. So he spent a very large, part of his life in prison simply for defending freedom. I think it's a wonderful story. Yeah, okay, I'm gonna check that out. That has a lot of elements that I think we can work with. Um, all right, we'll turn to the birthday boy now, uh, Adam Smith and the 300 year anniversary of his birth in thinking about a man who influenced the thinking of so many. Who were some of the people who influenced his thinking in his day? Well, he was very lucky because he, um, <clears throat> he was uh, uh, born on the east coast of Scotland uh, and spent some time in Edinburgh where he met uh, Adams, where he met David Hume, the, uh, the, the great uh, philosopher, um, who I, I think was one of the cleverest people in all of history and, and was a very nice avuncular man and, and, and helped him enormously. In fact, um, Hume uh, gave Adam Smith a copy of his book, The Treatise of Human Nature. Um, and he was lucky to, uh, Smith was lucky to go to Glasgow University, uh, which he did at the age of 14. Um, and uh, he, he actually took uh, uh, Hume's book along with him, but was um, promptly punished because this, Hume was a great atheist and this was thought to be terrible stuff that you, you could have this book by this atheist. So Smith was punished for that. Uh, but uh, otherwise he met some of the, the great thinkers of his age uh, because you know, Scotland was, was going through an intellectual renaissance. I think probably the biggest influence on him was the philosopher uh, Francis Hutcheson, who again, another philosopher of, of liberty, um, and I think that that had a, a, a major impact. And then I think the, the other thing that I suppose influenced him was that he won a scholarship to go to Balliol College, Oxford. And he went to Balliol College, Oxford, and he discovered there that um, the, the professors got paid whether they taught or not. So he said famously, the, uh, the greater part of the professors in, in Oxford have given up altogether even the pretense of teaching because they've paid whether or not. So I think that was probably quite an important uh, influence on his life uh, and ideas and an early lesson in, in incentives, really. Interesting. I didn't know that. 
All right, we're going to turn to questions in a little bit. So everybody keep on typing those in. Uh, I'm not ignoring you. We're going to get to you shortly. Uh, but I am curious, Eamon, of um, Adam Smith's two major works, The Wealth of Nations and Theory of Moral Sentiments, which is your favorite and why? Uh, well, I like the, the theory of moral sentiments just because, mostly because people don't understand that that's Adam Smith. They, they think of Adam Smith as an economist. He was actually uh, a brilliant um, philosopher, of, a moral philosopher as well. And that's the book that made his fortune and made him famous. Uh, it's, it's actually very difficult to, to read these days because uh, if you don't know about the debates that were going on at the time, it's, it's difficult to get through and it's written in this very flowery 18th century language. Um, so I, I don't actually recommend anybody should read it. And I don't recommend anybody should read the, uh, the Wealth of Nations either. What you should do is to read my condensed version of the Wealth of Nations, <laughs> the theory of moral sentiments, which is much easier and uh, much shorter. Uh, so that would give you most of the ideas without having to wade through these uh, you know, 500 or 800 page books. Uh, speaking of, what are some of the things that the Adam Smith Institute is doing to commemorate um, Adam Smith's 300th anniversary of his birth? Well, being British, uh, as you'd expect, we're going to have a booze up and, and we're having a, a big party in the House of Lords uh, later on this month. And uh, I'm sure a lot of the, the good and the great will be there. Um, I personally have been uh, going around the world speaking about Adam Smith in California and Europe, in, uh, I've just come back from Taiwan and, uh, uh, and Korea. Uh, so there's uh, a, a lot of that uh, sort of thing going on. Going on. And I'm helping uh, people at the University of Glasgow who've got a big uh, program, uh, intellectual program and uh, courses and book clubs and all sorts of things like that going on. So there's, there's a surprising amount going on all over the planet actually. Well, yes, indeed. Um, we just got together in Pasadena, California uh, at the Reason Weekend, which yes, um, had a yes. theme of celebrating uh, Adam Smith's birthday, even with Adam Smith oh, yeah, yeah. cupcakes. Oh. So that was that was really <laughs> exciting. Um, tell me, how controversial were Smith's works in his own day? Well, uh... I think his moral philosophy was unpopular with churchmen because um, he he gives a sort of evolutionary uh, explanation of morality that it's uh, that, that we're born uh, wanting to be good to other people basically and what he calls sympathy and um, uh, so I don't think they liked it very much but otherwise I think most people certainly most uh, educated people of the day. Um, thought, hey, this guy is really on the beam um, because uh, his e economic ideas were, were just breathtakingly new. The, the, he invented concepts like gross national products and things that we still use today. And, uh, and his moral philosophy, again, it was just breathtakingly fresh that, that no, nobody had thought of that before. Uh, and uh, so I, d I don't know that he was all that controversial. I think he was fated where, where, wherever he went. It's, uh, you, you know, like you asked about Adam Smith. No, it was easy for him. <laughs> it was easy. He didn't have much con controversy. And, and those that did were, were picking up minor points, I think, really. Oh, well, that's interesting. All right. Um, 
going to turn to some of our questions coming in, because there are quite a few. Uh, on Instagram, Haydenber25 is asking uh, Dr. Butler, have you ever read Marx? Any thoughts on Marx? No, again, it's uh, his books. If, I mean, you can open a page and look at it, and it's it's completely impenetrable. And again, I think that uh, he's bound up in the debates of the the time. I I have read quite a lot of uh, books about Marx's uh, uh, philosophy, um, and in particular his theory of history. Uh, and I think it's a load of junk that, you know, he, he assumes that history has a certain course which is predictable uh, and that's going to end up in the great uh, workers uh, nirvana. And I, I, I just I can't understand why this stuff is still clogging up university bookshops because that didn't happen. Right. You, know, you had 150 years and that didn't happen. Uh, what happened instead was that you know, capitalism developed in such a way that it actually benefited the working class, indeed more than anybody else. So it was the poorest people who ended up, you know, just fine in capitalism, and that continues to happen today. We've got increasing uh, the increasing world trade since the Berlin Wall came down, and, and the various reforms in the in the 1990s has has brought people throughout the planet into the into the market system. And that's been particularly good for the poorest people in the poorest countries. I mean, dollar a day poverty. When I was born, four fifths of the world lived in dollar a day poverty. Um, even by 1980, it was about half. Uh, and dollar a day poverty hardly exists anymore. And in a few years, it's not going to exist at all. And that's the market that's done that. So, um, so, so I think Marx's theory of history is just completely off. Our friend Candice Morena on Facebook is asking, uh, speaking of your upbringing um, with your parents running a small business, what is your perspective on the UK lockdowns during COVID? Well, they were absolutely disastrous, of course. Um, and we now know there's been various studies on it. John Hopkins uh, did, did a big uh, study showing that it uh, saved very few lives and in fact probably cost more lives because what we've happened what's happened here is in particular our public sector has closed down that uh, we um, you know, supermarkets and shops and so on worked out ways of dealing with the virus um, and trying to keep people as safe as possible um, but uh, we forced uh, uh, theaters and cafes and restaurants to close down um, so that killed the hospitality and hotels too. So that killed the hospitality industry. So we've, we've got to recover from that. But the, the very worst thing is that the NHS, um, the National Health Service simply couldn't cope with this and they uh, postponed lots of people's operations. And now people are dying of uh, cancer and so on. We have 20,000 excess deaths. Um, because people can't get, couldn't get the medical treatment. They still can't get the medical treatment. Some people are having to wait for many years uh, to get treatment under the National Health Service. So that all started from the lockdown. And so the lockdown was a, was a complete disaster. And I think people are beginning to realize that it was a complete disaster. And the people who got it right 
were people like Sweden uh, who said, well, you know, take care, it's up to you, you know, just be cautious. And people were cautious, uh, but they still went about their business, but they went about it in a relatively safe way. So, so yeah, it was disastrous in so many ways. Okay, Sarah uh, Giarchit on Instagram asks, if you have any thoughts uh, about Hans Hermann Hoff. I can't say that I like him very much. I don't know him personally, uh, but um, I'm I not think, familiar with him. So, no, uh, some Hans Hermann Hoppe. Well, um, he's one of these people that is is advertised as being a sort of Misesian. Uh, uh, libertarian, but in fact, there's a certain authoritarian streak uh, th through through his writing. So I don't, I don't really like that very much. Having said that, I mean, uh, uh, some of his writings are very challenging. I mean, he he's, uh, wrote a book about democracy. I, I read it when I was doing my own introduction to democracy. And uh, it's, he's really saying, well, no, what you need is a benign um, aristocracy, really. I thought, well, yes, okay, but and he makes the case for this uh, that that you know you need a country run by a king because they'll they'll run it efficiently because <laughs> because they that's their self interest in in doing that. And I thought, well, that's you know it's an interesting academic idea, but uh, you know let's not let's not go down there. So I'm, I'm not a great fan, I'm afraid. Interesting. All right. Uh, also on Instagram, Cozy Cherries asks. I'm not sure if you'll have an answer to this, but what is the best way we as Americans can fight socialism, communism? I feel hopeless not trusting our election process. Well, um, I think that you have to, I, I think you have to be reasonable and not to be doctrinaire. I think one of the problems with American politics is, is when you, you know what somebody's position is on one issue such as gun control, you, you know what it is on abortion and various and welfare benefits and various other things as well. And I don't think politics should be like that. I think people should should think think freely. And um, I, I mean I think you've got the same problems that, that we have. We have a we've got a culture war going going on. Uh, and I think we, we have to deal with that. But I think you deal with that by just being reasonable and and, and saying well, uh, yes, you know, I mean, I mean, fine, you know, people can change their gender, and I've got absolutely nothing against that at all. And you know, I've got friends who've changed gender. But when it comes to should a, a male who's changed gender into female be allowed into a female changing room at a sports pavilion, well, you can see that that might cause some problems. So, and people might get agitated about that. So I think that one needs sort of rational solutions to these things and, and tempered solutions to these things. So, so I think my advice is, is don't be doctrinaire, but, but be practical and, and see what works. And I think uh, also we, we need to invest in, in the education of, of young people. I mean, uh, not by having more teachers, they're, they're the enemy. Uh, but uh, by you know getting good stuff out, like like you do at Atlas, to, to getting good material out, which is digestible to to young people. It's why I write all these uh, introductions to things, and uh, you know so that they've got something they can go back to the teachers and say, yeah, well, have you thought about this though, this argument here? 
So I think it's very important to do that. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that I really admire about uh, your work, Eamon, is the fact that you've done so many of these, these primers, you know, these kind of condensed introductions. It's similar to what we do at the Atlas Society in terms of our pocket guides, pocket guide to objectivism, pocket guide to capitalism, pocket guide to socialism, et cetera. Um, because one needs to first start with the premises and recognize reality. And the reality is that 77% of young people in the 1970s were reading daily for pleasure, not things that were assigned. That is uh, dropped to 12% today. So um, you can just keep throwing books at them or you can get creative and, and you can start doing other things. And graphic novels is the one uh, category that has defied the decline in reading for pleasure. And so that's why we're doing that. But, um, you know, you just have to you have to change with with the times. Oh, yes. And I think we ought to, on our side, I think we ought to be doing a lot more video work as well. Um, I've, I've been trying to organize a, a, a TV documentary on, on the real history of communism, uh, because so many young people in particular think that communism is the bee's knees. Mm -hmm. And uh, gosh, it killed 100, 100 million people. Um, so it's it's not something you should uh, you should welcome. And the trouble is, of course, that most of the people who remember it are dying off so we've got to get their testimony uh, onto onto film right now otherwise it'll be too late so so things like that i think i i, I think we need to tell more stories on film and your graphic novels things like that is, is what we need to do yeah, you know, the media have changed right you know people, people look at an old copy of a newspaper and it's very dense print and people used to read all that stuff and they don't they don't do that now no and, and, and no i mean people are online nine hours a day uh average yeah. for, for young yeah. people. Yeah. people get their information through social media and so on so you have to be active on social media it's very important all right on twitter speaking of social media mark kirk cop asks uh he says there's a big meme online about the uk requiring a license for everything are mm -hmm. licenses a long-time economic regulation in the uk oh yes um yes it's a it's a real problem in fact we did a report called licensed to live <laughs> the opposite of the james bond you know license to kill uh and uh that was gosh that must have been at least 20 years ago and we were pointing out some of the absurdities of uh, licensing, like um, you, you needed a license to be a hairdresser in Scotland, but not in England and, and, and so on. So there are all sorts of things like that. Um, I think uh, part of the problem is that professions like licensing because it keeps out the competition, you see. So if you can say, oh, I, I'm, I'm an expert and I've got this diploma and I've got a license, uh, then you can say, right, well, people without licenses shouldn't, shouldn't be allowed to practice. So you get much less competition and therefore much less innovation. So that's, that's a real problem. Um, but yes, it is with us. And uh, so much regulation is, is actually promoted by uh, entrenched business, business interests. Uh, and, and I see it over and over and over again in the, 
House of Commons where businesses are talking to members of parliament and they say, oh, these regulations are working very well, Minister, but if you just tweaked it a little bit like that, it will work even better. What they mean is tweak it like that, and that'll completely take out the competition. <laughs> so so I, something we have to be aware of, and it's not very easy to fight because every reg regulation is there for a, a reason that it's had people promoting it. And, uh, you know, when you when you say this should be scrapped, people people come out of the woodwork and say, oh, no, you can't do that. No, no, this is, that, that'll make life unsafe and people will fall off ladders or whatever it is. And uh, so it's a it's a real burden to to get rid of. And I think the only thing you the only way to do it is basically uh, do uh, deregulate whole swathes of things at one time and you say to parliament in our case right we've got a deregulation unit they think that all of these regulations ought to go and that's it take it or leave it you can't pick and choose they've all got to go or they've all got to stay and i think parliament would end up killing a lot more and and after brexit we've, we've got the opportunity to to get rid of a lot of uh, european uh, regulation which is extremely detailed and uh, we haven't really taken the opportunity. We haven't been organized enough. So uh, that's that's a benefit of Brexit, which we've still got to feel. Lots to do. Uh, again, on Instagram, Robert Stephen Mack asks, uh, what is your favorite book by Ayn Rand? Oh, The Fountainhead, I think, which is, I think, the first one that I, that I read. I think... Uh, it's it's a more believable story than Atlas Shrugged. I think it's um, it's still bizarre. I mean, these, 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 the main characters are quite bizarre people, uh, and it's you know remarkable that anybody should be as uh, uh, as dogmatic about sticking to their principles as, as Rourke is. So it's 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 difficult from from that point of view, but um, it says what it's got to say very clearly and it's it's uplifting and and it's it's not too much full of caricature like i, I think uh, atlas shrugged is so i think that would be my favorite yeah philip coates on zoom is asking you if you could only read one economist as a layman who would it be ah now that's a difficult one um yeah. And he's also asking, are you if you're familiar with George Reisman and his magnum opus, Capitalism, a treatise on economics, how it compares to? Uh, yeah, well, I, I know uh, George Reisman a bit, so yes, uh, it's a very it's a very good book. Yes, it's, uh, and he's a good person. I think um, one economist I would say Milton Friedman, uh, because Milton Friedman was um, the great communicator. Uh, I, I keep on saying that F.A. Hayek was, I think, the the wisest person that I've ever known personally. But I think Friedman was was the sharpest. He he was very quick. Um, he was uh, very very good in debate. Um, always relished debate. Uh, he debated people who utterly opposed him with a big smile on his face, and that comes through in his writing. So. Um, his economic work is, is mostly about monetary policy, which you know, is a bit dense for, for most of us. But then in things like capitalism and freedom and free to choose in particular, um, he starts applying uh, a liberal free market, liberal in the European sense, um, free market uh, pro-liberty thinking 
to all sorts of economic issues. And I think that that's, that's very instructive and it's something that uh, a lay person can, can get to grips with. So yeah, Milton Friedman. All right, um, Zach Carter on Twitter is asking uh, your book, The Condensed Wealth of Nations is unavailable on Amazon. How can we uh, even, best- Even better, it's free online. If you go to adamsmith.org, Adam Smith our website, it's on there and it's 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 free online. All right, we'll put the link in all of the um, chat streams. Sure. Uh, again, Philip Coates on Zoom is saying, I believe Thomas Sowell wrote a basic economics text and a condensation of Marxism. Any thoughts on his writing in general uh, or on these two subjects? Well, I can't comment on that particular uh, book because I don't, I don't know enough about it. But Tom Sowell is, was, uh, I, th I think, a very brave man um, uh, who, who raised some, you know, very interesting issues about welfare in the United States and, and things like that and, and, and asked some very uh, pertinent questions about it. So, uh, I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm a, great, a great fan, a nice guy too. And uh, I... Uh, so, so I'm a great uh, fan of his, and I think again his uh, his work is very readable. You, you can you can read it uh, um, even without a, a great background in, in economics. Although he was a very um, accomplished uh, economist, so um, yeah, I'd recommend him to anybody. All right, on YouTube, Scott is uh, talking about the Outlander. I guess it's a series. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Um, it's about to return for a new season, which uh, shared a lot of 18th century Scottish culture and asking, do you think that um, period of integration into the UK helped to inspire the Scottish Enlightenment? Oh, yes, undoubtedly it did. Uh, that um, once after the Act of Union in 1707, uh, then it was much easier for people in Scotland to trade with England for a start, very important. And it was also much easier for people in Scotland to travel to England. So, so they did that and they picked up lots of uh, new ideas. And, um, uh, and they, they came back and they, they thought about these new ideas and, and worked on them. And it was a very important part of the Scottish Enlightenment. It's a bit like, you know, Daniel uh, Burstein uh, wrote a book about the cultural frontier and, and he was saying that uh, you, you need to come up against other cultures in order to spark ideas uh, and uh, get out of your existing way of doing things. And I think that is very important. I, I, I mean, whenever I travel, I always pick up, you know, innumerable ideas about, well, why, why don't we do things better? Why don't we do, do it this way rather than that way? And uh, I think the same was true in the 18th century in, in Scotland. Um, and that really culminated, I think, in 1822 when uh, we had a, a visit to Scotland by uh, George IV, showing that, yes, you know, Scotland was now a proper nation. It was no, no longer a, a northern wild place. It was, it was a, an intellectual powerhouse. So, uh, and, and it produced Smith and Hume and, and, and lots of other great, great intellectuals who influenced the, the English influence, uh, intellectuals like jo Joshua Reynolds and uh, uh, Samuel Johnson and, and, and people like that. It was a great, uh, intellectually a great time to be alive. 
All right, I'm going to turn back to some of my questions, but I uh, want to grab this one from Ann M on YouTube. What is a story of Adam Smith's life that most people don't know? <laughs> well, there we are. Well, I think most people probably don't realize that he never married. Um, and uh, it's said Was that, that he... unusual in his day? Uh, yeah, well, Joshua and Reynolds didn't marry either, I don't think, but most other people did yes that's right and uh, uh i think i think it was perfectly normal but, but but he didn't i think he was probably too much of a, a sort of academic somehow to, to, to do that he lived most of his life with uh, with his mother and when she died it was a female cousin who who looked after him and i think probably somebody had to because i don't, <laughs> don't know that he he was great at navigating his way through putting life. his toast in his teapot it, all that kind of thing yes that's right and he fell into a tanning pit once because he wasn't looking where he was going, and so on. But um, uh, so I think somebody had to to, to look after him. Um, so I think people don't don't really un understand that uh, part of his character. But at the same time, he was um, he was hugely respected by by everybody that he that he met. Um, when he published his his theory of moral sentiments in 1759. Um, he was basically headhunted by the stepfather of a, of a young aristocrat, and he was given a very handsome salary, something like, I don't know, $200,000 these days, to tutor this, uh, this kid, oh, plus a lifetime pension, uh, you know, and another $100,000 for life. And um, so it was a very generous deal, and, and he could hardly refuse. So he he said to the students that he was teaching at St Andrews, at, uh, at Glasgow rather, uh, I'm very sorry, I've got to leave the course halfway through, and um, but I've, I've worked out how much money I owe you all, because uh, then the students paid the teachers directly, and I put these little parcels and, uh, you know, each, there's a name on it and each person can collect their parcel. And so he was handing out these parcels of money uh, to his students, but, but they snuck around the back of him and put it put it back in their pockets they're just saying that no, we've had absolutely fantastic value <laughs> even mm. though we did half the, half the year <laughs> it was still worth the money <laughs> speaking of the uh so he went to tutor this young son of an blue, aristocrat. yeah, yeah. 12, 13 how did how did that young man turn out Oh, uh, uh, great! He was—he uh, was—he uh, he fulfilled his uh, ducal duties just as you would expect, and I, I think—and uh, and he he maintained a lifetime friendship with with Adam Smith, which actually still runs in the family. I've uh, I've met and stayed with the the current Duke of Buccleuch, um, who is very proud of his ancestor and uh, very proud of the uh, the connection that. Um, uh, he has with Adam Smith through that, and and he even has a, a copy of the Wealth of Nations, and on the flyleaf in a very scrawny hand, it says uh, to the Duke of Buccleuch from the author. So that was that was Adam Smith giving his patron the the uh, uh, first copy of the book. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, all right, turning to the United States, any examples of how Smith influenced America's founders? Well, they all read it. Um, you know, I've seen a, a copy of the first edition of The Wealth of Nations, and there's the signature Alexander Hamilton uh, on the flyleaf. That was his personal copy. Um, so I, I think they all read it. Um, and I think that it, it helped them to build a liberal constitution. 
again, liberal in the European sense, I'm sorry. Um, so uh, a constitution based, based on, on freedom and liberty. Um, he wasn't so successful at getting them to uh, reduce taxes on trade, which was uh, the big theme of the, the Wealth of Nations, really because the fledgling United States needed the money. And so they, they put a lot of tariffs on trade in order to raise money to, to keep the state uh, going um, after, after the Revolutionary War. So um, they, it was a while before they followed the tax advice, but in terms of the framing your constitution, I think, yes, uh, he was very influential in that, uh, as he was in many, many other countries. Amazing. It was, it was a bestseller, you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, despite his admiration for the American colonies, he was also an outspoken critic of the slave trade and the mistreatment of Native Americans. Is that right? Oh, yes, def absolutely. Definitely. Um, firstly, he thought as an economist, he thought that it was bad economics, that if you force people, if you have to force people to work, you can't really expect them to do a very good job. Um, you're going to get a bit better job out of free people who enjoy what they're doing. Um, so he thought it was bad economics. And a lot of people have caricatured him as uh, being, oh, well, he was only against the slave trade because it was bad economics. But that's not true. He was, he was deeply against it morally as well. And he writes uh, in a very heartfelt terms about how the slave trade, you know, the, the, the slaves themselves have far more nobility in them than any of the, the down and outs who are, who are the traders in, in slaves. And he, he was very scathing of the, the people who dealt in the, in the slave trade. Um, and again, I, I think that, well, among other intellectual influences, is one of the reasons why the uh, Britain was one of the first countries, along with Sweden, to uh, stamp out the, the, the slave trade. And indeed, we... Um, uh, you know, many Royal Navy uh, lives were sacrificed uh, trying to uh, prevent that trade from, from going, going ahead. Um, so I think, uh, you know, he, uh, it was a very, very influential book, Wealth of Nations, where this appears. And um, everybody read it, all of the aristocracy read it, all of the top politicians read it. And yes, it had an effect. What are some of the more common fallacies uh, today about Adam Smith, for example, the idea that he favored progressive taxation? Uh, no, he favored, a, uh, there are several of these, but he, he favored a, a tax on consumption, uh, really, rather than income, because he, he thought that, um, yes, richer people should pay more, uh, but you could do that through consumption because they consume more and therefore you could have a flat tax on consumption and you'd end up with the um, uh, aristocratic, the richer people um, paying, uh, paying more tax. So I think that, that is, that's a, a fallacy. And I think that um, the idea that he was um, uh, sort of so laissez-faire, well, laissez-faire, he was devil take the hindmost, if you like, that, that, you know, that he was a ruthless pro-capitalist and, and therefore, you know, if, if you couldn't match up, then, then that was the problem. So uh, that was your problem. So I think that instead, he was deeply concerned for the, the lot of the ordinary working people. And his view was that 
um, a free economy liberates uh, ordinary working people, it liberates the poorest. What the problem was in his time and the problem is in our time is that you've got an economy which is dominated by vested interests and they try to keep everybody else out of their business, uh, out of their market. And therefore what happens is that ordinary people can't get a look in. So they can't use their talents to improve their own lives and that of their family. So um, yes, I, and I, I'm sort of motivated. One of the reasons I believe in free markets, again, is the same, that you know, I'm interested in the, in the plight of the working poor. And I think they're getting a very bad deal from all of the regulations and taxations, taxation that's imposed on them. Now, some Marxists say that uh, Karl Marx got his labor theory of value partially from Adam Smith. Any truth in that? Well, it's possible. I think this is probably a misreading of Adam Smith. Adam Smith, it's in a passage where he's talking about the development of uh, the economy. And he really starts by looking at a, an age in which he, he thinks, well, th th there's no capital at all. And therefore, if it takes you twice as much to uh, time to hunt a deer as to hunt a beaver, then uh, a deer must be you know, worth twice as much. But if you look at, and, and people have said, oh, well, that's a labor theory of value and Marx picked that up. Rothbard says this, I, I knew Murray Rothbard and he was a great controversialist, but I, and that's a step too far. Uh, Marx got his ideas from all sorts of different places. Um, and uh, if you look at the rest, all the rest of the wealth of nations, it's all about supply and demand. <laughs> and it's all, it's all about, you know, value up here. Uh, and, and so, you know, the idea that, a, that Smith really promoted a labor theory of value, it's a misfortune. And in a big book, there's a lots of things that are, uh, you know, inconsistent and maybe it would be better if he put it another way, but I don't think you can actually pin that one on him. All right, um, any speculation about why Smith wanted his personal papers destroyed after his death? It wasn't that uncommon at the time. And I think you must remember that, that Smith died a very famous man. Um, he was known around the world. And I think he didn't want his reputation to be trashed on the basis of maybe uh, something that he'd half finished or, you know, a letter to a friend where he said something indiscreet, uh, that sort of thing. And, and therefore he decided that with very few exceptions, um, all of his papers should be burned. It's um, a misfortune for us because I'm sure that there would be interesting insights. And in particular, uh, I, I always say Adam Smith wasn't an economist, he was a social psychologist. He wrote about, uh, he wrote about moral theory, he wrote about economics. And he also wrote a little bit and lectured on uh, arts and culture uh, and the use of language. And I think that you know, he had it in mind to produce a book on politics um, and another one on justice. And I think it would be fascinating to see if there were in his pictures, in, in his papers, uh, some notes or thoughts on those subjects. I think they would be absolutely fascinating, but sadly they've gone up in smoke. All right, we've got just nine more minutes, um, but of course this interview wouldn't be complete without a couple of questions about Ayn Rand. For the past nine years or so, uh, the Adam Smith Institute has organized an annual 
Ayn Rand lecture in London, which I had the privilege of attending back in 2016 when you and I first met. One of the Atlas Society's supporters, Dr. Michael Kaufman, uh, has delivered the lecture, as did a recent guest on this podcast, Lars Tveed. What is your uh, yeah vision for the lecture series? How do you pick your speakers? Well, what we look for is um, people who have been influenced by Ayn Rand, but who have brought that influence into business. So instead of getting political thinkers and uh, philosophers and so on, uh, what we've been getting largely is business people who've been influenced by Rand and basically whose, um, whose values in business, if you like, have been shaped by their, their reading of, of Ayn Rand. So they, they understand about rational self-interest. They, they un understand about building a reputation and they understand about being confident in yourself. Um, and I think that that's, uh, the formula seems to work very well. So we, we always uh, pack out one of these uh, big uh, city of London, very fancy livery halls, they're called, um, set up by the guilds, which we disapprove of, but set up by the guilds in the 18th century. And um, uh, so we always uh, pack the house and uh, I think it's a series which is going to continue. So we need Fantastic. more speakers, but apart from that, <laughs> Well, perhaps we can help. Yes, um, yeah. So tell us about your primer, Ayn Rand, an introduction. Did you learn anything new in preparing it or were you pretty well versed in the subject already? Well, I think with all the primers I do, I do them partly as a, uh, a measure of self-education uh, mm -hmm. because so many people and so many subjects, I don't know whether it's capitalism or democracy or, or anything else, inequality, uh, all the other things I've written on, I, I know a little bit about, uh, but I think, well, I really would like to know more about that. And so it's partly done for my benefit <laughs> rather than the readers. Um, so I think I learned a lot about Adam Smith because I, I didn't really know much about him at the time. We we took him as the name of the Institute because it kind of sum, sums up what we believe in. But at the same time, I didn't really know much about man and, and, and his thought other than the wealth of nations. So I learned a, a, a lot about that. So, but that's, that's true of every other subject I've written on. It's, you, you, learn, you learn a lot when you have to write about it. Well, I highly recommend them. And um, I like that a, a couple of them are on audio. I, I just listened yes, a couple of times to your primer on uh, Hyatt. So uh, that was really enlightening. Um, Quick question about modern day UK. Really confused by what happened with Liz Truss's short time as prime minister. She seemed to advocate um, some free market ideas, but the markets reacted very negatively to her proposal. So what was that all about? Well, I know Liz very well. And, um, uh, you know, she's always been a great uh, hero of mine. Uh, but um, I, th I think she wanted to reduce taxation, and I think that's absolutely uh, vital, and I think we should have done that. Uh, at the same time, she inherited from Boris Johnson um, a package of uh, uh, a bailout package for homeowners to help with their energy bills, and that was extremely expensive. So I think they thought that um, her administration thought that, well, you know, that's already been decided. We can't do anything about that. 
And by, by the way, everybody else is doing it. The Germans are doing it. Everybody else around the, the planet is, is helping out with uh, energy bills, helping householders. So it's not very controversial. So we'll carry on. Um, so we'll cut taxes and we'll just borrow whatever it takes to, um, to, to carry on. And I think uh, the markets were a little bit jittery about that, but things were made even worse by the establishment. The Bank of England uh, gave her almost no support at all. Uh, the treasury were, the treasury bureaucrats were openly hostile. Um, so uh, it, it just, it, it, it all came to grief, unfortunately. And it's a, it's a great misfortune because if, if you've, you're facing a recession, you, you really do have to cut taxes. We've got to grow and create new businesses. And the one thing which kills people kills uh, new businesses and stops people starting new businesses is the idea that well e even if they succeed in a new starting a new business they're going to get whacked by in our case 25% company tax plus income tax plus national insurance plus all the rest so that really stops you from developing new business and 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 then you can't recover uh, so you get in that downward spiral that we were in in the 1970s, which induced me and other people to go abroad. Well, speaking of going abroad, uh, as we were uh, mentioning before, you've been to the U.S., South Korea, Portugal. What's next for you? Um, where are you going? How can we keep track of your work? <laughs> well, I was rather rather hoping to put my feet up. I'm, I might be going to, to France to do some university there. Uh, I'm not sure. I was sort of thinking about doing a meeting in, uh, in South Africa. I'm not sure I'm going to do that. Um, I'm certainly going to be in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire in uh, the end of October. Um, but other than those, I haven't the faintest idea. If somebody wants mm -hmm. to invite me, I'll go. We have a standing invitation here in Malibu. So thank you, Eamon. Uh, this has been great. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. If you enjoyed this video or any of our other materials, yeah, consider making a tax-deductible donation at atlassociety.org. And be sure to tune in next week when Hotel Magnet and former ambassador to the EU, Gordon Sondland, will be our guest on the Atlas Society Asks to talk about his book, The Envoy, Mastering the Art of Diplomacy with Trump and the World. So we'll see you next week. Thank you. <laughs>